my dad had these incredibly beautiful blueprint drawings. I don't know if you remember in the day before the the computer age, people used to draw their technical drawings by hand, blueprints. So my dad was of that generation that drew by hand all his technical buildings, worked many years as a civil engineer in England, and you just had these incredibly long A1 sheets. Yes. And I used to look at those things and think, what is that? Whatever it is, it looked amazing. It looked beautiful. And I think I just always just had this instinct for wanting to just make things and understand things. Welcome to the Paint and Pipette podcast. My name is Jeremy Utley, and it's my job to illuminate the tactics of world-class performers across domains. As a day job, I teach at the Stanford D School, helping students learn what it takes to come up with ideas. But I've realized I need to stay in the classroom learning myself, and this podcast is my classroom. Hey, hey, I'm Marcus Hollinger. I lead marketing and creative at Reach Records and Atlanta-based independent record label. And I'm also co-founder for Portrait Coffee, where we are seeking to reimagine the picture that comes to mind for folks in specialty coffee. I'm so excited to pull up my desk alongside my good friend and fellow learner, Jeremy. And I think y'all are going to love what we have for you this season. We've got some amazing stories on deck, and we can't wait to dive in and learn alongside you. So grab your pipette and your paintbrush, and let's make something beautiful together. So it's our pleasure to get to chat with Demi Samande. Is that how I say your last name? Okay. No, no, no. It's it's Samande. You got it right. Samande. You say it way more beautifully than I do. I'll just put that out there. You may have more practice, (laughs) but... So Demi, for those who don't know your work, give us a quick introduction. What do you do? All right. So I manufacture furniture. I have done that for the past 13 years, having come from an architecture background and I went into furniture manufacturing. And that's basically what's led me to my journey in Nigeria so far. It's funny. Somebody asked me this about two days ago. They were like, oh, who are you and how can I help you? And I said, I'm Demi Samande and I'm the future of manufacturing in Nigeria. And their eyes just went wide open and they were like, whoa, really? Is that right? Please take a seat. So that's how I'm introducing myself these days. <laughs> so what does it mean to be the future of manufacturing in Nigeria? Tell us about that more specifically. So Nigeria has a very interesting history in terms of manufacturing. We were one of the top manufacturers in the world at some point, particularly in my parents' generations where, you know, we're manufacturing, you know, food, produce and exporting all around the world. And it was actually one of the major contributors to our, um, to our economy. And somehow we fell off. You know, we discovered oil and manufacturing was no longer of anything of interest. And since then, it's been quite an uphill struggle to get back to that point, particularly now when, you know, there's of course a question mark on the oil industry in terms of the future of Nigeria and Africa as a whole, that we possibly will run out of oil. What else is there, right? So this conversation about manufacturing locally has been an ongoing conversation for some time. So when we talk about manufacturing, particularly in my industry, in furniture, you know, Nigeria, I don't know if you know, is largely an import country. So we import, we are a consumer country. We consume a huge amount of things, products, uh, food and all of that. But compared to 
the size of the nation itself, we are producing very, very little. Why is the um, production deficit? What are you attributed to? It's, I think it's a lack of focus. I think it's definitely due to a lack of foresight from perhaps our previous leaders in probably the last few decades. They didn't plan for this. You know, there was a huge amount of excitement when we discovered oil. And I guess a lot of people assumed oil would never run out or oil would always be enough to sustain us. And they were not interested in multiple you know, multiple streams of income to sort of support the growth of the country, the people, the economy, the future. We're now in this position where people are now filling their thumbs and trying to figure out, wow, this thing will eventually run out. It's not sustainable. At least it's not as sustainable as we assumed it would be. So here we are, you know, and manufacturing worked for us at a point in time. And it can absolutely work for us again particularly for a country that wants to be self-sufficient, you have to produce your own food. You have to know how to feed your own people. You have to know how to meet the needs of your own people at the very least. There's a lot of political things, attributes to a lot of these problems. And I don't necessarily want to go into all of that now because I'm not a sure, politician, sure. but you know, there's so many layers to this. So when I talk about being the future of manufacturing in Africa, it's, or particularly Nigeria to start off with, it's really just talking about people like myself who are trying to find solutions to a lot of our problems and trying to do it from an inward perspective as opposed to the outward perspective, which is really what got us here in the first place. So how did you get to the point of manufacturing? How did you get to the, because you said you studied architecture. It's not a small leap from architecture to furniture, furniture. right? Yeah. So we'd love to hear, like, how did you find furniture as kind of the point of entry into the marketplace and rebuild? I don't know if the vision for rebuilding manufacturing was first or if furniture was first, but tell us about your journey from architecture to furniture. So my journey has been wholeheartedly from a place of passion. My passion has led me to this point. I never planned any of this. I always planned to be a superb architect working in a city somewhere in a concrete jungle, just designing beautiful, tall structures that I will be celebrated for for the rest of my life. But then it quite worked out. I probably worked as an architect for all about two and a half years. It wasn't particularly as fun as I thought it would be. And furniture really for me was something that I was doing as a hobby. So it was birthed from just me having fun. I love furniture. I started playing around with it. I would buy furniture. I would be interested in how I can manipulate furniture, how I can restore furniture because my genesis in business, I started off as a furniture restorer. I love to use my hands. And, you know, my days of studying architecture, my favorite type of architecture was always about what can get me into the workshops, what can get me playing around with the wood, what can get me block making, what can get me testing materials and, and thinking about how I can manipulate things into becoming new, beautiful things, you know. And I think when I stepped into furniture and restoration, it really was just birth for me just being very curious. I grew up a very curious child. I always, I was the one who would be in the living room dismantling the sockets because I wanted to understand how it worked. So, you know, and I think I've carried that through in my entire sort of career. And it's me. Hang on, hang on. You said, <laughs> you said I was in the living room dismantling the sockets. Tell us about that. I mean, that's not a phrase. I don't think, I don't know, Marcus, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think we've ever heard that phrase. No, no. I've, I've heard of kids hurting themselves by sticking <laughs> things into the socket, but not this <laughs> approach of dismantling and, you know, reassembling. I'd love to hear that. 
it's reverse engineering. I thought I called it. At least that's what my parents, my father's a civil engineer. So whenever he found me taking things apart, it was always a, it, this is reverse engineering. She's trying to understand how things come to be, how things are pieced together, how things work, right? And it's very much the same thing with furniture, right? So you see a beautiful piece of furniture and then you want to understand how did this thing come to be? So you reverse engineer it. You start by taking it apart. I want to know how the joints are made. I want to know what pieces go where. I want to know what templates creates this incredible shape. I want to know what materials gives you the best feel, comfort, ergonomics. It's all reverse engineering. I think as a kid, it was very, very curious. And in all honesty, Marcus, I was shocked a couple of times. I'm going to lie to you. There's a few <laughs> times where I, <laughs> I got a little buzz, buzz. And as I was that, and I just stopped in my tracks. But it never stopped me from just wanting to delve a little yeah. bit further. Sockets. I'll take apart DVD players. I'll take apart CD. These are the CD, you know, portable CD players. I don't know if you guys... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Discman. Discman. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're called Discman, but we had the larger CD players. It was a little bit wider, and then it went into this like Walkman, where you can the portable one you can carry around. I would literally take things, and the moment there was a hiccup, give me a couple of hours, and I've already dismantled the whole thing, and I'm trying to a fix it. I'm trying to understand it. I just want to know what is inside, and that's literally how I grew up. And my parents were not adverse to that. They just sort of see me fiddling with things, give me a look, and then just go about their business and just get like, really? And they just let me be. Did that you see somebody else do that? Where did that instinct come from? Do you know? Because that's amazing yeah. to me. And Michael Dell, by the way, did the same thing. He saved that money in his book he writes about that he saved that money to buy his first Apple Macintosh. And his parents were aghast because the moment it arrived in the mail, he took it apart. And they're like, you <laughs> saved all your money to buy this you know, super expensive computer. And you take... but. For him, it was just like, yeah, that's what I do. So I'd love to know, like, was someone in your life modeling that? Was it just innate? Do you know what? It's very interesting you use the word instincts. I actually think it was my instincts. I don't recall ever seeing anybody particularly do that in real life. But I do recall, however, my dad had these incredibly beautiful blueprint drawings. I don't know if you remember in the day before the the computer age where we have fancy CAD and AutoCAD and renders stuff. People used to draw their technical drawings by hand, blueprint. So my dad was of that generation that drew by hand all his technical buildings, worked many years as a civil engineer in England. And you just have these incredibly long A1 sheets. Yes. And I used to look at those things and think, what is that? Whatever it is, it looked amazing. It looked beautiful. And I think I just always just had this instinct for wanting to just to just make things and understand things. And I think I just followed that instinct, in all honesty. That's cool. I would love to get to the shop. So you talked about how you're in the architecture program, but you kept finding yourself going to the wood shop. That was something that you did as a hobby. How did you get into furniture restoration like walk us through that part of your journey all right so let me take you back 20 i believe it was about 2010 and i'm working as an architect outside of london and i'm commuting every day and i hate it and at the time i'm living in a one-bedroom flat with my partner and we're like oh we need some furniture here and we both have this insatious love and passion for leather for a particular type of leather furniture called Chesterfields and we said oh let's buy one we eventually sought one out we purchased it and immediately came I was like what is this this is fake this can't be right and he was like what are you talking about it's wonderful 
I didn't like it. And then one day I'm just with my sister. We were just strolling at the local stores. And then we see an ad on the wall that says a Chesterfield set for sale. Contact this number. This is just a supermarket. So I contact this number and this old lady says, oh, she's selling the entire set. Come have a look at it. I go over there. I said, yes, this is the original one that I wanted. How much for it? I ended up buying the entire set. And my partner was like, um, why? We don't have the space for this. We live in a one bed. And I was like, don't worry, don't worry. I'll figure it out. I just want it. I literally spent my last money buying this entire set. Got it home and I immediately put it up online again to sell the extra pieces. And we just literally flipped our money incredibly quickly and made a profit. And then my brain was like, you should probably do this again because this clearly worked. So we, that's how we literally started. I roped him in and he started getting excited about this thing. We were just two young kids who were broke, <laughs> who needed money. And we just flipped the sofa set for literally three times what we paid for it. So he now started finding more and more sets. And then we now discovered very, very quickly that if we purchased the sets that we a bit more, less usable condition, we would get them for considerably more. I then was curious. I then found somebody who could basically tidy them up and get them ready for reuse again. So this gentleman who was a furniture restorer, I found him online. I said, well, I have a bunch of furniture. I need you to restore it so that we can put it up back for sale. The gentleman came and I just found myself just watching him. I watched him the entire time. And I just think to myself, I can do this. I just didn't know how, but I just thought I can definitely do this. So I started recording him. I started filming wow. him restoring was, was he okay with that? <laughs> oh, he didn't know. He didn't know. I had my little phone on the bookshelf and I would record this man working away. Clearly, maybe second or third generation furniture restorer, because this thing is not something you find easy online. It's usually passed down generation to generation. Wow. So I started filming him. And then this man, he would go to the bathroom. And when he goes to the bathroom, I'll quickly take my photograph, everything that he was using, because I dare not ask him, show me how to do this because this is livelihood right so i'll photograph it and then in my spare time i'll go look for those items until i found majority of them and then when i discovered that you know what this is going to be a lot harder than i thought i found myself a furniture restoration school and i enrolled myself so i took the little that i'd learned from watching youtube videos from practicing Every time he'll come over, I'll watch him intrinsically. I'll watch back the videos after he leaves. And then when I got to the restoration school, I showed them what I'd learned. Some things, the ladies were like, mm, that's not how you do it. Let me show you how to do it. And then something, she was like, how did you learn that? And I was just like, hmm, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. So that's, that's, a, that's like, a, that's like yeah. a build your own apprenticeship program. That's basically what my journey has been about. You know, I just had to do whatever I could to try and learn and just apply myself and just not being scared to just try things out and then fail and then seek a bit more knowledge and then go back and forth again. That's just basically how it's been for the now, last 13 well, years. Tell us. Okay. So this is amazing. I love, this is so cool. Tell us about, you said not being scared to fail. Tell us about a time when maybe there was a temptation to be afraid, but you pushed through it around failure. Like when you say not be scared to fail, bring us into that moment where you're like, oh, I don't know. You know what? Even till now, I have those moments in honesty, guys. Like I don't think that thing ever goes away. But I think one thing that I have cultivated over the years is a knowing that it's just a feeling, right? Because there's been moments where I've been petrified and I'm like, I don't want to. And then my brain just says to me, push. If you push, you'll probably get far further than you 
would have. And I think that's just come from practice over and over and over and over and over again. It happens all the time, in all honesty. I don't really, I don't think I ever go a month where I'm not tested in terms of my willingness to push the boundaries even a little bit further. Because as I'm going further and further forward in my journey, I'm finding that I'm actually coming across more and more challenges. My challenges don't decrease. I'm just getting better at attacking them, right? With a little bit more vigor, with a little bit more aggression. What was the last time, or can you think of a recent time where your brain had to tell you to push? It was a recent challenge where that happened, where the brain was like, yo, this is one of those times you push. Okay, so recently there's a piece of furniture that we were tasked to do. This was only what, 10 days ago, perhaps. And it was a design that we had never done before. And my guys had tackled it and I wasn't happy with it. I was just looking at this piece like, mm, I don't know what it is, but something doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't look like something that I can be proud of to just hand over and say, yes, go ahead and release it. And we were going back and forth and trying to tackle, because this is one of those reverse engineering moments again, where we know what something's supposed to look like, but we don't necessarily know how to get to that point, right? But we know what the overall outcome should appear like. But how do we build from the inside out to achieve that? And we built it inside out from the way that we understood it to be. But then once it was completed, we realized "Mm, this is not right. So how do we now go back? And in that situation, time was against us. The knowledge seemed to be against us. And again, it's almost like we've tried this thing at least three times and it hadn't worked. So at that time, we could have given up and said, you know what, we just can't achieve this. Then I just stopped and I said to my guys, you know what, start again. Start again with the knowing that we probably will fail again. But at the very least, we need to at least know that we've tried everything possible in our power. And then I had to just kind of think to myself, okay, what have I not tried? What have I tried? I honestly felt because it was three times, we're furniture makers and we're failing at this thing. So your natural brain would say to you, give up and go focus on something else. But that resilience in me and that, you know what, we need to basically go back to the drawing board and understand what it is that we're missing in terms of knowledge and then try to apply that again. And we did. And although it wasn't perfect, it was a hell of a lot better than what we had before. When you How say go you back know? to the drawing board, Marcus and I are like, we're both on the same, we're on the sniff of the same trail. <laughs> because what imagine- was different with that fourth time? Did you find a new piece of knowledge? Did you find a new piece of inspiration? Like what changed? I think what we realized at the third point was that these are three attempts that we have tried and all those three attempts were different. So we now know for sure that those three attempts do not work. I can now say categorically, those three ways will not work for this particular project, right? So I'm able to now comfortably walk away from them as a solution. So I'm now looking for an alternative solution. I'm thinking to myself, if that doesn't work, then okay, I'm having another idea. So therefore, if I do the calculations right, if it didn't work, then it probably won't work again. So therefore, I just have to pivot completely. Okay, so let's go back to the reverse engineering again. Maybe we need to go maybe a step further back before we can get to this point and just go back to the basic building roots, right? So we start building a new template from scratch. And I think for me, it was kind of like, okay, I now know in this particular moment, the extent of my knowledge base. So where can I now go? Where do I now go to tap into that extra bit? And then I think that was a point where I was just like, okay, I need a little bit more than what I currently have. So where do I now go? And if I'm going to go there, how much am I willing to risk? Because bear in mind, 
this job was already a month late, guys. So the pressure mm. was mounting. It's already late. We don't have the time. We could have just easily gave up and said, you know what? We've done what we can. Just let it go like that. But no, we had to pull it back and say, you know what? This is not working, but we're going to need more time because we're not giving up on it. I definitely appreciate you laying out that process and how you know when you've kind of completed a cycle or when to start. That's such an important process of finding breakthroughs, right? And the process. But something interesting was happening in my mind while you were describing that process and how you led your team through that. And I want to go back to what you talked about, the future of manufacturing in Nigeria, because I'm like, she could just as easily be talking about how to lead that process with the same language. And I want to come back and really ask, well, how did you make that jump from being very involved in furniture now and finding these breakthroughs and finding out how to be successful to say, hey, we've got to get involved in solving the nation's manufacturing. What was the moment where you said, hey, this can translate to that. We've got to get involved because I I feel like I could be listening to the next president right now, the way you are describing these leadership skills, this drive to push. But I'm curious, at what point did you say, well, it's time for us to start to think about that problem? Because I recognize quite early that people don't want to deal with the problems. And I think that's one of the issues. Well, it's actually the sad story of our country and our nation and a lot of the problems that we're facing today. I think many people want to just gloss over things and try and find the quickest and easiest solutions, but they're not really solutions, the temporary fixes, right? So in that particular moment where it's like, we're not getting it, leave it alone, move on. No, 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 no. No, we're trying to solve problems. We'll call ourselves manufacturers. And as a manufacturer, your job is to solve problems. Your job is to find innovative ways in situations where things just don't seem to work. It's not enough to just say it's not working, leave it alone, move on. And I think that attitude of leave it alone, move on is what's landed us in this situation already, right? So if we're really going to be the future of manufacturing, we have to be the ones to be like, do you know what? It's not working, but we have to take responsibility for the fact that it's not working. But what are we lacking that should enable this thing to work and to push further uh, we don't necessarily have. And then taking a couple more steps back to go back to the roots of, okay, we need to build this thing from the bottom up. Because once you've done it once, you don't have to do it again. So it teaches you, okay, there's a logic behind the madness. So you're constantly going back to understand the logic behind the madness in order for you to take one step forward again. So restoration taught me that. And then what manufacturing has now also taught me in the most recent years is that, and the more and more I delve into it, the more I'm learning this, I'm problem solving every single day. A lot of people who consume furniture in this country, and even a lot of people who trade in furniture in this country, don't understand how the furniture came to be. And if you don't understand how something came to be, how can you possibly offer it as a solution to anybody? You're always going to be a consumer. So in order to be a maker and a creator, you need to be able to offer solutions to problems and to be able to always push the boundaries of how you're reaching those solutions on a daily basis. And I think I've come to the understanding that that's really where my passion lies. I love to problem solve. And I think when my teens are very much accustomed to just letting it go and moving on, I'm always the one trying to be like, no, we need to understand it. And it has worked for us. We've now been doing this, what, four years. 
and some of the things that we have made that people are like, you made that here? Yes, we did. Because if other people can do it, why can't we? It's still the same brains we're using, right? We're still using the same interest. We might have limitations, but I think once we understand what those limitations are, then we can look for solutions to them. Can you tell us, Demi, because, you know, where we left you in your story, aside from this, you know, recent 10 days ago, where we left you in your story is you're in London in a one bedroom flat flipping furniture. Now we fast forward, you're talking about I'm the future of manufacturing in a country that's relied on oil too long. How did you go from London architect, furniture restoration as a hobby, back to having a passion for Nigeria? What have we missed in the origin story of the superhero that you are? So I'd love to hear how you came into a sense of purpose around not just furniture restoration, but Nigeria. So I'm Nigerian. My parents are Nigerian, but I've been in the UK pretty much my entire life. So I didn't really have a connection to Nigeria other than the fact that, well, I know I'm Nigerian and we have a Nigerian community in the UK where I'm from and so forth and so forth. And it was actually my brother-in-law who had the idea and said, you know what, your furniture really do well in Nigeria. They don't have this stuff. And I was like, Nigeria? nah not for me I'm British <laughs> and that was pretty much the response I gave him he said you know what you should just go on holiday and explore it and it was actually one of my trips that I took here and I actually saw that wait people are really consuming a lot of things but nobody's actually building the stuff like surely it can't be that difficult to build this stuff and I thought oh, let me try it out and that's how I tried and in the first year that I was here maybe even the first six months I started learning about my own culture in a way that I didn't know about before. I started interacting with the locals in a way that I'd never experienced before. And I quickly just found that people just had a lot of, people had a lot of passion. People had a lot of curiosity. People had a lot of raw talent, but they just had no direction in terms of how to utilize all that talent and all that passion because they didn't have the resources, right? They didn't have a lot of these resources, but I was very curious and I was very, I was shocked by the level of passion they had and the level of skills, raw skills that they had in despite of the fact they didn't have those resources. So that made me even more curious. And I think really it's from doing that I've grown in this interest and this passion for how can my work really make impact in a most viable place, right? I can do great work in England. I did a fair bit of work in England. But I think when I came here and I started hiring local carpenters who really a lot of them were living hand to mouth every single day. For them, work here is survival. It's not about passion. It's not about innovation. It's not necessarily even about, you know, my deepest desires. A lot of people who work here, particularly the craftsmen, it's a way of life. It's a survival. They have to work in order to survive. And when I started hiring these young boys and young women and middle-aged boys and middle-aged women, I saw that my work was having a direct impact to their lives, right? And I think that kind of just strong accord with me. I can do great work and I can do it in such a way that I am growing homes. I am contributing to livelihoods. I'm making a difference in small communities. And I don't even know, we don't even know much about Nigeria. We have a huge unemployment problem here where a huge number of people just don't have work. And, you know, in our last session, Jeremy, I spoke about a little bit about entrepreneurship being a way of life here. It's not mm. entrepreneurship here 
most people here don't even know they're entrepreneurs because they're doing it for survival. But yeah. they think like entrepreneurs, they maneuver like entrepreneurs, they function like entrepreneurs, and they find a way where literally there is no way, but somehow they do it. That's entrepreneurs to me. That's my understanding of what an entrepreneur is. A lot of people, they don't have the support of the government, so they do a lot of things independently on their own, but they find a way to make it work. It's organized chaos, right? So can I create great products? Can I impact a lot of lives whilst I'm creating great products? And can I show that there's the talent that exists here, the raw talent that exists here, and do it in such a way that we actually have uh, proof of concept you know, every time we make a great piece and we know it's made locally, I know how many people that impacts. I can literally tell you how many lives, how many schools, school fees, how many dinners <laughs> are probably achieved from that piece of furniture that you buy, how many jobs that I'm creating. Every single time I create a piece of furniture, I'm not just outsourcing it. I'm taking it in-house. I'm trying to solve this problem wherever I'm able to, and I'm able to leverage up others for that extra support. But I can literally see, I can see wow. day to day the impact of my work. And I think that's really where I derive my passion. And I think that's, this, that's been the bridge that has crossed me over from London, working as an architect, doing furniture restoration, and has led me to Africa, where I can literally see that if I am indeed the future of manufacturing, I know what it's going to create and what it's going to mean for the people in my country. That's incredible. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I'm so deeply touched. I don't know. Have you ever thanked? I hope you have. I assume you have. But have you thanked your brother-in-law for recommending you take that trip? Oh, oh, yes. I uh, often blame him when things go wrong. When things of go course. wrong, I equally blame him. <laughs> Why did you fault. tell me to move here? It's yeah. not your fault. The audio oh, yeah. won't work. It's driving me crazy. Oh, no. yeah. There's a heap of problems. There's a heap of problems. But, you know. What can we do? We just get mm. on with it. It's, Demi for president, as Marcus yeah. said. Demi for yeah. president. Yeah, honestly, the whole time I'm hearing <laughs> you speak, I'm like, wow, yes, we are speaking with the future of manufacturing and maybe more for Nigeria. You know, Demi, I'd love to put you in touch. There's a couple of folks we've spoken with in the past who I think would be pretty interesting, just contacts for you. So mm -hmm. if you're open to it, I'll put you in touch with them and you can. You can oh, connect. yes. Let's connect. Let's do great work. I'm all for it. Love it. I love it. Well, it's incredibly inspiring and invigorating. I would say even more inspiring than I was expecting. So thank you for making the time. Thank sure. you for enduring the hassles of audio connections and things like that. It was hugely worth it. We know that yeah. this, this story we, is going to yeah. inspire a lot of people. I hope so. I really do. And, you know, I just really appreciate you guys for taking the time to hear about the journey so far. Marcus, thank you. Fantastic questions. Thank Absolutely. You, thank, you, thank you so I'm much. I'm truly inspired. I can't wait to listen back on this episode and, and really be able to get the value out of it. And we'll have to check back in with you along the journey. Once you fix manufacturing in Nigeria, I want to see what you do next. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think all I hope for really is like do my part and then pass the baton along at some point. I think that's really what we can all hope for, you know, and get it going. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, have a wonderful evening there. Have a great weekend. 